So welcome back, everybody. First of all, a special, a special um, extra credit goes to everybody who I saw just a few short hours ago at Slechos. So especially, uh, special, a special welcome back to the show. Also, um, I want to also just uh, say that today is a special day in this, the regard that today is Torah New York, where there is the OU program at City Field. We go to many stadiums for good things uh, and fun things, but we also go for Torah. As well, like soon we're going to have the CMR Shas at Medlife Stadium. Today we have Torah New York. And just also special, special shout-outs to, where's Ira Wegg? Ira, Ira is doing a CM today on Smichas Chaver for the last six months. He just passed his, his Bechina for the last six months. And God willing, after Sukkot, we're going to start Smichas Chaver in this shul. We're going to go through areas in Halacha, very specifically, very defined, in a very practical way. We're going to be learning it together. And there's going to be tests and celebrations at every, at every juncture. So... Just so that that's going to be part of the celebration today. I look. For, I'm actually going to be at City Field a little bit later, <coughs> presenting on uh, a new program on the DAF, which is very exciting. In the meantime, let's learn this morning. We have a, we have an exciting day ahead. Um, we are going to be learning today um, about meeting the minds, the Meiri's introduction to Yisrael Shuvah. Before we begin, I want to start off by thanking um, a number of sponsors. First of all, I want to thank Murray Cohen. Where is Murray? Well, Murray Hakohen is going to be here in a, in a moment, um, um, and. Uh, and, Cha- and Chaim Seppel, who are sponsoring the Ilu Nishmas, Joe Lichtenstein, Yosef, Yankov, Ben Harav Mordechai, Ben Yamin. Joe was a member in our shul for many, many years and was an individual who was always here, always davening, always talking to about Torah, was a very, very special individual. And uh, he had no children. And I feel that our community, in a certain sense, is, uh, are his children. And we, when we continue to remember him, when we continue to remember his humor, his good face, his good nature, we are continuing to give rise to the very special human being that he was. So it's very important just to, to, to bear him in mind, especially in our learning today and beyond. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Chaim, for making sure that we are learning Le'elu Nishmasayim. We're also going to be learning today Le'elu Nishmasayim, Bas Menachem Mendel, Anshul Weiss's mother, whose yard site is today. Um, it should be Le'elu Nishmasayim. And also, I want to thank Dr. Yossi and Judy Simpson, who are sponsoring the Ilu Nishmas Fruma Ita Basarav Yoshua Binyamin, um, Yossi's maternal, uh, paternal grandmother, whose yard site will be in Chafei, the Yom of Briasa Olam. And um, it, it should be a alias neshama for her and a chizuk for the entire mishpacha. We're going to be learning today. We're continuing in our general direction of learning about introductions. It gives us a taste of these particular svarim, of these particular books, which perhaps we, do, we, have, ne- we have learned, which perhaps we have not learned, perhaps we would aspire to learn. This over here is a rather obscure book that we're going to be learning. And it is in the season of Slichos. We're moving our way towards Rosh Hashanah. This is a perfect opportunity. We're going to be learning about some of the work, or one of the works of the Me'iri, Rav Menachem Me'iri. If you've not heard his name, it's because he is somewhat obscure in certain, in certain circles. Now, the Rav Menachem Meiri, his, his, bio, his biography is also somewhat obscure in the following way. The Meiri was a, was a person who was born in, I believe the way we pronounce it is Papanyan, which is, um, um, uh, he was born in the 1200s and passed away in the 1300s. He spent his entire life in that area, and therefore it, it um, is really considered among the Rabbi Seinu Harishonim, one of the medieval commentators, as is called academically, but really what we call the Rishonim, the earlier commentators preceding the Shulchan Aruch. 
And he wrote in an, in an incredible fashion. He, is, he, was a very, he came from a very well-respected family. But we know from some of his introductions to his books that his father passed away young. He was orphaned at a young age. And we know at some point, tragedy struck and his children were taken into captivity for some, for, for some political, for some money-related um, issue. He doesn't explain. We don't have too, much, too, much, too, many, too many details on his life. What he did do was he was an incredible contributor to the corpus of material, of literature on the Gomorrah itself. And he wrote a commentary called the Beis Habakira. We have a set upstairs in the library. The Beis Habakira literally means the chosen house, referring to the Beis Migdash. It was his halachic compendium on the Talmud. And um, what is interesting is, first of all, it's extensively long. And today, every yeshiva would have it. Every yeshiva would have the Me'iri, and we learn. We have a set, oh, fantastic. On the back left of, our, um, of, of this room, I know there's one at the library. Thank you to Avi who has furnished our incredible collection of sorry, So if everybody takes a look in the back right of the, of the, of the, the room in the top shank of the, of the bookshelf, that entire section is the Beis Abachira. And the Beis Abachira was only one of his commentaries on the Talmud. The Beis Abachira is this halachic commentary on the Talmud. Um, it is in a, a very unique style in the way that, first of all, his Hebrew is lucid, is clear, is simple. And he sets out everything very simply. He introduces every parak about what's about to be talked about. He is able to be read in such a way that if you didn't even read the Talmud, you'd understand what's going on because he gives you an introduction, he tells you what the, the issues are, and he presents all the people who preceded him. But what's interesting is, is that he doesn't but refer to them by name. He gives each one of them their own description. So there's, uh, there's, there's Godol HaPoiskim, there's Godol HaMachabrim, and he talks about different Chachamim. Some of them we know, this is Rashi, this is the Ramban, this is the Rambam. Some of them we don't know, we still are left guessing as to who he's referring to. Very respectful all the way through. He also wrote another commentary on the Talmud, which was less focused on halacha. It was more focused on the depths of understanding, the plumbing, the depths of the Talmud. And he wrote many other essays. He wrote an essay about writing a Sefer Torah. He wrote a Kiryas Sefer. He wrote a, 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 a book called Mogen Ovois about the customs in, in, in France around that time. He wrote numerous, numerous books. He wrote a pirush on Tehillim, which we have today, ex expressing not just his commentary on Talmud, but also his ability to be able to comment on the... If we could just pass this along over there. Um, also, uh, the ability to be able to understand text itself. A remarkable, really a remarkable, remarkable author. And what is interesting is, is that a lot of his works we really never saw till recently. In fact, most of his works are not published. Some people say because of the, simply because of the length of their writing. And remember, we're pre-printing press. So we're talking about a manuscript which has to be written out. So most of his works did not really come to light till the 1800s. And a whole, lot late, a whole lot of them only really actually got published in the 1900s. Many of them were discovered in the Vatican archives, as an example. So, for instance, the book that we're about to learn a little bit about, what's called either the Chiburat Shuvah or Yesodat Shuvah, was actually only published in 1950. So talk about a relatively recent, which does create a lot of very fascinating discussion as to the following question. And that is, is that the Me'iri has such a remarkable view, is such a clear, such a rationalistic view on, on, on the, the learning of Gomorrah and of the Sugyas. The question arises the following. So look, let's say somebody over here today says, you know, I feel that the Shulchan Aruch was incorrect about such and such, a, uh, such, and such a, an aspect, such a, a value. So the answer to that is, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Shulchan Aruch was closed, you don't have a say in the matter, and therefore you weren't part of the conversation. 
when the Shulchan Aruch, when Rav Yosef Kara closed the Shulchan Aruch, that was it. We're not cur- curating. We're not. We're not. Uh, which is shifting. There are certain poskim. There are certain nice kalim. The Shach disagrees. The Magen Avram disagrees. The Shulchan Aruch here and there. But they had the shoulders to disagree. We don't have the right to sort of say, you know, I think I think differently. The Shulchan Aruch took all the some corpus or material that he had available to him and he considered it. So he has the issue, an interesting thing. There's a whole discussion because the Meiri he didn't have available. A lot of the a lot of the Meiri he didn't have available. So now, do we consider the opinion of the Meiri post facto part of the conversation, the dialogue of Alocha, when the Shulchanot didn't have it? Very, very interesting discussion. And many of the poskim say that there was a certain hashkocha that the Meiri is not part of that conversation. Meaning, yes, we have it today. And yes, it should inform our way of looking at the Gemara. <coughs> but because he was not at that table at the time, that the decisions were being made, he does not factor into the halachic process, which is a very fascinating discussion in and of itself, because he sort of, so to speak, skipped that moment in history, even though we have him today. Be it as it may, we're not going into the halachic aspects here, we're actually going to go d- delve into one of his essays, which is not just an essay, it's an extensive book, on the process of teshuva. And um, all we're going to do is we're going to just read his introduction, even his introduction is extensive, we're not going to do the entire thing. Uh, but but it, just to appreciate, just to appreciate this, what I did was I, I broke it up into five main sections. Uh, so I, I, I labeled them so we can have an opportunity to do this. And I underlined the sections that we're going to learn together because it's simply not possible to do the entire thing together today. We don't have enough time to even just do the introduction together. He's so prolific. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at the beginning. The first section, which is going to be section one, divided into A, B, and C, and D, is really where he describes how he feels inadequate writing this in the first place, which is always the first thing you want to hear about somebody today. Because you understand, today, most people start their books saying why they are qualified to be writing the book they are, even though they generally are not. And this is exactly the opposite of the way it used to work, is people talk about why they were unqualified, even though they were highly qualified too. So just appreciate that, uh, that sort of switch in, we'll call it self-promotion of society. Here we go, let's take a quick look over here. We're switching over to page, this is, the, well, this is really uh, the third page. And it says Hagdama. This is his introduction. I'm going to only read the underlined sections together, and we're going to get to the meat of it in just a moment. He says, "Halo Anochi, Hadal Anochi Atzair Beveisavi, Valfi Hadal Beshifti." Look, you know, I'm the smallest in my father's house, and I'm the, the you know, the, so to speak, the the, the neediest or the, le- the lesser the lesser of all the tribes. Alke Yecherad Kastiv Kavesifri Upachad BeMeil Yate Eti. I'm scared. I don't, I'm, I'm terrified as I'm holding the quill. I'm, a, in, I'm encased in fear before I write this. By the way, you notice, of course, that it is rhyme. rhyming as well. So not only is it just the content, he's able to use this. Every phrase or every semi-brief over here is also quoting, is reforming a, a posuk in Tanakh as well. And also later, you versions of how he's going to express himself in certain names of Sfarim. Very, very fascinating. So he's not too scared. Now, it's not just because he feels inadequate by himself. There are people who also tell him he's inadequate. So that's the next section. We're going down to 1B. He says, I am of uncircumcised heart and, and uncircumcised lips. How will anybody who's intelligent ever listen to me? Right, you're using the words of Paro, uh, Moshe Ravani in front of Paro. We just hear the borrowed echoes from Tanakh. 
Uh, if, if, you know, they're referring to an episode that occurred to a Yechezkel, if I have the scroll in my mouth of lead, so I feel like I have a message to tell. Like Yechezkel has this Megillah Seifa, the, the imagery is that he had to swallow this lead, the, this, this, this scroll, and he had to give over this terrible message. He says, I feel like I have this. I'm scared. But the problem is, is if I say what I have to say, I know that I'm inadequate. I'm not a perfect person by any stretch. But I'm in pain. So I'm in this internal turmoil. My ideas are, 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 are trying to lead me. My ideas are trying to lead me. They, and and I'm, I'm, I'm con, in a certain sense, I'm, um, I am struggling with whether I should express my ideas, let my, let my springs, my wellsprings express themselves outside. So I'm struggling. Should I or should I not? On the one hand, my thoughts say I have a message to tell. On the other hand... I'm being crippled by the fact that I'm inadequate. I don't feel there's people who say that I'm not really the Ishzar on the outside tells me I'm not necessarily re- have the requisite intent or actions or lifestyle. So he's, he's struggling whether or not to put this put pen to paper. He says, Kfari, we're jumping down to the third section now, 1C. So we don't, today, unfortunately, the works of Rav Shlomo Ibn Gavirol is our understudy today. Actually, Dr. Abramson, when he gave a session last year, gave a very large session in a section about who Rav Shlomo Ibn Gavirol, or Gavirol is, a remarkable philosopher and contributor poet um, in, and, um, into to, uh, to society. He says, B'psichas, in his introduction, So he says, look, there's people who are saying that I shouldn't be speaking. But I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing because of what other people are saying about me. And even though they are claiming that I should not be writing, I know that inside I'm actually innocent of the things they're saying about me. I'm going to now have to suffer their arrogance, even though I really am not deserving of it. He now quotes the Rosh Medaktikin. If you look at the footnote, this is Rabbeinu Yona ibn Janach. So in the Sefer Arikma, again, he has an example of where the Meiri does not identify who he's referring to, but we can, we can, we'll call it contextually, try to surmise who it is. So Rabbi Yonah ibn Janach was one of, the, one of the, 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 his predecessors, and what he says is, is that I'm not going to allow other people's, we'll call it, um, negativity to influence the message I have to say and share with the world. So apparently he feels, not just in terms of personally, but he also feels in a society, in a social level, that whatever he has to say is going to be difficult. Now, why do you think that is? Well, why do you think that is specifically about the, the topic that he is talking? Because what's this an introduction to? Teshuvah. Right? So whenever you talk about teshuvah, 
You're all going to say things which are going to upset people because of the lifestyle they lead. And if you say things very directly, people are going to realize that you're speaking about their neighbor. <laughs> and so therefore it becomes very uncomfortable when people realize that their neighbor is being talked about. And people are going to say things and they're going to say, wait a second, who's this man over here? He gets up one day, look at him. I saw he came late to Shachris one day. <laughs> I, I don't understand, who, who is he to be talking? The way the Gomorrah says it is, is that it's very hard to give Musar because if you say to somebody, you have a splinter between your eyes, you know, just, you know, just wipe that away. What, you know what they say? They say, Akura ben enecho, you, well, you're talking to me. I've got a splinter between my eyes. Well, you have a plague between your eyes, right? Who are you to be talking to me? People don't like hearing Musar. So let me hear he says, I know what I'm going to say is going to upset a whole lot of people. So therefore, I'm very worried about this. He says, but the goal is going to still not interrupt the means. I know that I have something to say, share. And therefore, he says in 1D, in this next section, he says, In conclusion, He says, you know, I've looked around. I've looked at the libraries and the bookshelves, and I've not seen any one book which contains all the aspects of tshuva in one, se- in, in one section, which is fascinating, by the way, because one of his teachers is a person by the name of Rabbeinu Yana, who wrote a book called Shari Tshuva. So we have to think to ourselves, what is he adding that he feels that Rabbeinu Yana is not addressed fully enough? Because he certainly references Rabbeinu Yana many times as one of his teachers. Things which are written here and there, and that's why people will hide themselves from them. And that's why we carry on. We, we inherit the, the sins of our youth. I'm going to explain to Shuva its parameters, its conditions, its details, and its rules. And the necessary, the necessary We'll call it, what's the word he says here? The necessary actions or regulation of actions to get you. So this is his, his resolution to write his book. So at this point in time, we can now rest assured that he's done what, he, done what he's promised and we can carry on reading. But it's important just to be able to hear the tone of what this is. There's some people who take great glee in getting up on their soapbox and being able to tell the community what, what, what they feel about things. He says, I don't feel that, but I feel there's a necessity. And this is, this is, the, this is the inattention that he experiences. So what's he going to do? So let's take a quick look here, some very fascinating perspectives. And they, very, they relate very, very much to the times that we live in, very much to the specific season that we are in right now. Let's start at the beginning. Moving into section two, this is really um, actually on the numbers of his pages. This is page three. And we're going to now start learning about what he says is what he, he believes. There are, there are three ways that people can possibly change. There are three ways that people will be able to have the opportunity of doing Teshuvah. The idea again of Teshuvah is being a return, whether it be a return to our pristine self or a return to the pristine way that we were born and our relationship to the Rabbana Shalom, to the Almighty. Here's the way he starts. We're going to look at 2a. Again, I just, I've summarized because it's not possible right now to go through all of this together. This is a very, very fascinating insight into the aspects of change. What would you like um, so here's how it goes. It says, Kiyatashuva, by the, the underline on page 3, this is 2a Kiyatashuva. I'm going to explain different aspects of Shuva. And I think we're fit into the first category right now. 
There are people who are able to make a reformation in their lives without anything happening to them. Or the sin arriving because of their mistakes. So he says, Sometimes the way we can change is just because we enter the right season. Nothing's happened to us. Life is as regular. But now suddenly something changes. The slichos are a little early in the morning or late at night. People now, now, now we start talking the, the tone of the drushas, the tone of the divertory read on the parasha every week suddenly shifts. Things become a little heavier. And we start, you know, there's a certain, we'll call it, heaviness in the air around us. And, and that, that itself starts in, in a, we'll call it, a, some, somewhat of an oppressive atmosphere, but also in a, a, in, a, in a good way. We start thinking about our lives. We're back here again. Why are we back here again? Are we the same? When you bring out those notes from the previous year, do the notes look like a carbon copy of what I would be writing this year? I remember one year, I was on Erev Yom Kippur and I was doing a, and I sit down to my, my journal and I was writing down, you know, uh, what I have to work on. And I could almost swear that it was word for word what I wrote last year, which is a terribly depressing thought. Because if right now I'm writing down the same thing as last year, that means to say that the last 12 months and 29 days, 11 months and 29 days really weren't that productive, were they? And so I turned to the rabbi of the shul I used to daven at in Chicago, Rabbi, rabbi Gross, and I said to him, Rabbi Gross, it's so depressing. And I was walking in, as you can imagine, to call, to, to call Nidra at this point in time. And he looked at me and shook his head. He says, the problem, the problem is, is that you only looked at your notes on Erev Yom Kippur to Erev Yom Kippur. Mm. Meaning, if, if, if that's the only time you take stock, then of course they're going to look the same. Right? You have to make sure that those notes are being looked at on a weekly, monthly at least quarterly basis, right? We all do a review when it comes to these things, when it comes to the financials. What about when it comes to, the, we'll call it, the emotionals, the spirituals? Is there a quarterly review? Right, we, there's a certain element over here of, of, uh, of the season itself. I remember when our Rosner was here a number of years ago, he talked about, I don't remember who it was, a, a, a certain tzaddik, a certain righteous person in Yerushalayim, who always lived, you know, he was a, tr- a, tremendous, a tremendous person in the sense of self-work. They once asked him, what was it, like, sort of what made your, what, what, what shifted your life in that direction? And he says, that when he was a youngster, he would, uh, there was a time when his village was, his little town in Europe, in Eastern Europe, was visited by Rabbi Sol Salanter himself in the 1800s. And Rabbi Sol Salanter, of course, was one of the uh, tremendous Talmud Chacham, but also the, 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 the person who evolved what is, so we call the Muslim movement today. And he came into the show. Shul, and you can imagine, it was a small community, so everybody was there. All the adults were there, all the children were there, and the way they did it was, so every, all the adults, of course, had seats, and they put the little <coughs> boys in the front, and they sat on the floor in front, just where the, where, where the rov would come in. So Rabbi Shalom walks in, and he runs, he, at a very fast pace, he gets to the front of the shul, and he, he stands at the podium, and he says, as it was, just at the beginning, he says, El, 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 and he fainted. Because of just thinking about Elul, and he landed on this little boy. And this boy says, for the rest of my life, I bear the weight of the Elul of Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. I, I, felt, I felt that Elul of Rabbi Yisrael. That was something which changed his life. 
Now think about that for a second. That means to say, it says in the Eri, sometimes the season itself allows us to do that inner working. That's level number one. Level number two, V'yesh, there are other people. Asher loy hisorer There are people who are not going to wake up by the season. So some people, it's the season's not enough. They need to be standing there with the iron open and the Nisanatok of talk, um, being sang by the Chazan and hearing those terrifying words, which every year mean so much more. Right? This is not an academic exercise. We know. We see this. Every single year. There was one year I was called out of shul at Natanatokhev to say that somebody had just passed away. At Natanatokhev on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. This is not academic. Says the Me'iri, sometimes the season itself is not strong enough to get us there. But we get on a stronger pill. And that says on the days of Din themselves. And we have, we're reminded that yes, we need to do something. We need to make sure that we're going to make the cut. God willing, we should all be there. You know, they say, in Tanakh, there's a, there's a story in Shmuel Aleph Perak Chofhei. And it's about a fellow whose name is Naval. Naval may not have been his real name, but Naval means, or how do you just translate it? Disgusting. Disgusting is a disgrace. He was a disgraceful person in many ways. And what happened was, is David HaMelech was actually, in a certain sense, protecting his flocks when he was, when David HaMelech was a refugee. And David Melech asked for help, for financial help, for being supported with food. Naval ignored him. David Melech was about to go out and kill him. And this man's wife, whose name was Avigail, goes out and intercedes, brings food to David, saves her husband. And in the meantime, he's partying, he's drunk on the floor, he's having a great time, he's a very rich individual. And she comes back and, you know, he wakes up from his drunken stupor in the morning. And she says, by the way, you know, you were almost dead last night and I saved you. Because David Melech was coming in with his war host, and, I was, and what happens is the, the Tanakh tells us that he, he, he fainted. He went into a semi-comatose state, um, and the Mephoshim debate was that because of the fear of what could have happened, or was because that he was so concerned about the lost property which he gave to David. That's, that's, that's how attached he was to, to he, was, he was concerned. I just lost a whole bunch of assets to, to David. Um, but Ibir as a mate says that he was, he, he, was in, he was in this state for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, he passed away. So what some of them point out is what were the 10 days? The 10 days of Aseris made Shuvah, meaning, what did Hashem do? Hashem, in a certain sense, took away the possibility of the second option. He took away the possibility of utilizing this time to correct himself. And therefore, if he was going in this trajectory without any interruptions, and unfortunately, the result was he didn't make it because he wasn't allowed. He wasn't given the ripcord. We have the ripcord. That's level number two. Then level number three, and because this, this, this is very serious over here, level number three is if a person is not waking up to the season, is not waking up Yerosh on Yom Kippur, on level number three to see, and there are people who they don't get the message uh, the first two times. And at some point, and it doesn't have to be around the season, it could be out throughout the year, things happen. Things which are negative happen, and the person has to somehow wake up and realize 
They call out to Hashem that there's something which they need to, need to take care of. They say, and I'm sure it's an apocryphal story, but they say that Alexander the Great um, wrote a letter to his mother. You know, Alexander the Great, you know, was an extremely, extremely successful military leader. He conquered most of the known world. And um, he passed away, not in, a, not, in, not in an assisted living, as one would imagine. Because those who live by the sword generally don't, don't have such long, lo- long life expectancies. He actually died in his 30s. You can imagine he conquered all the way into Asia um, in his 20s. Can you imagine? A very, very powerful man. So he wrote a letter to his mother. And he said that if I predecease you, then I, what I want you to do is I don't want it to be at my funeral. I don't want it to be a sad thing. I would like it to be a celebration. And I'd like you to, as my last dying wish, if I happen to die, I'd like you to invite all my friends, and we're going to celebrate, make a very big party. But the only condition is, is the only people who will be allowed into the party are people who have never suffered in their lives, people who have had good lives. And that's way we'll ensure that the tone of the party will be only upbeat. And so it happens. He passes away at a very young age, and she invites, and she went around, and she looked around and she found that there was nobody who came to the party. And what he was trying to say was, there is no one. Understand, there is no one, no one who gets through on cruise control. It doesn't work like that. There's no such thing. So what the Miri is saying is sometimes when those things happen, that's the calling. That's the calling because we missed the first two sometimes. Or we had heard them, but we didn't utilize them fully. Three ways to arrive at Shiva. Now, he takes it one step further. So now he says, so what are we supposed to do when that happens? When we hear the calling, what do we do? So we're going to, tell us to move into the second section now. This is the third section, really. And he says, It's to call out to Hashem. We know we, there's a, the Torah commands us to call out to God when we're suffering. <laughs> The Torah tells us in Parshish when we have an enemy surrounding us, we should blow trumpets. What's the blowing of the trumpet, essentially? What really is it? It's the wordless cry to Hashem. It's not a war horn. It's the cry to Hashem. Hashem, help us. Sometimes we can't even articulate those words. Anything that's attacking you, inside or outside. Anything whether it be the burst tire, or much worse than that. In Seder Tanis, talk about the idea that this is how and why fast days are instituted, because we're reacting to a circumstance in life. You know, the Rav Soloveitchik points out, and this, we, we've learned this a little while back, when we're actually on Parshas Ba'ala Rav Soloveitchik has a very fascinating insight, where he says... That there's a dispute between the Rambam and the Ramban as to whether there's an obligation to daven. The Rambam says there's an obligation to daven every day. Maimonides. Nachmonides says no. Based on this pasuk over here that he just quotes, there's only a, a, a requirement to daven, but ace sorrow at a time of suffering. So Rosh says maybe, in fact, the two of them are actually converging to the same ultimate, we'll call it, same normative action. That is, the daily we have to daven. Why? Not because they, they, they're disagreeing in principle, but really the, the human condition is one of a tzara. We wake up in tension, we have expectancies, there's difficulties in our life, and therefore every day, of course, is a requirement, Davin, because we all have a tzaras, some of them more minute, some of them more larger in our lives. 
which require us to call out. So says the Mi'iri, the first step of action is not to dismiss, but rather to, to, uh, to internalize. And then he says into the next source, Aval, in the next uh, 3b, Aval asher Let's say a person, the tire does burst. But instead of calling out, what do they do? They kick the car tire, they swear, they call up their spouse and say what a terrible day they just had. Right? And they get very angry with, with the tow truck driver. Right? All the other scenarios we can imagine that, 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 that have happened. He says, Because they make no connection between what's happened and, what's, and, 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 and their actions. That's what happens, you know, statistically speaking. People get sick, statistically speaking. Tires burst, statistically speaking. These things happen. Unfortunately, the wheel of fortune turned. I'm at the bottom right now. And this is what happens. It says, There's no darkness, there's no shadow. Hashem doesn't really, isn't really involved. You've gone fishing. This is a cruelty to think that Hashem doesn't care enough to be involved in this world. This attitude will allow a person to carry on with a corrupt lifestyle. Example. It says by the Tower of Bavel, Perik Yud Aleph in Bereshis, it says there were Sofa Achas Dvarim Achadim. Dvarim Achadim means one language. What does that mean? Rashi has a, new, a number of explanations. Rashi says in his last explanation, you know what it means? They said, we have a theory. The theory is, is that once, every 1,000, I believe it's, I think it's 756 years, I don't know the exact, the sky falls on our heads. Therefore, let's make Towers either to escape or to support the skies. What are they talking about? They had us this flood. So here's the problem. Here's the human experience. We had a flood. Were we acting so well? Well, not really. There was bestiality. There was, there was, there was relationships out of wedlock. There was stealing. There was thievery. The, the Oretz was Molechamos, right? It was all bad. There was only one individual in his family who, who succeeded in surviving. So now God wiped out humanity. Yes, he promised not to do it again. But the problem is like this, is that that really has very damaging theological implications on our lives. Because now, when we want to create a society where we, we want to just be a little bit lax on the policing side of things, right? It's all right, you know what? You know, if, you know, as long as the most successful, most powerful people in society are succeeding, then society should be all right. The problem is we can't do that with the knowledge that what happens is that God cares. So you know what? There's a theory. It's a scientific theory. Every 1,756 years, there's this terrible catastrophe. So if we can deal with it on a scientific level, we can explain it away as a happenstance, or something which just happens, I can now live with myself as I allow society to deteriorate into the same state that it was beforehand because it had no theological implications. That's what we do all the time. What we do is we blame and we explain. And we... I remember in Calvin and Hobbes, if you excuse me if uh, the reference over here, Regardless of Bill Watterson, he says that, uh, you know, his, his dad, the, the, the tire bursts and his father's getting out and he says, Dad, give it a kick, it always works in the movies, right? <laughs> so that's, that's not how life works. That's the Meiri says that there's a certain level because if we carry on living like that, then we'll never improve because we never saw that there was any implications of this. And, and to me, this was, I guess this is a shocking statement because today in society, we're so not about that. Anytime th- something happens bad, we're trained to find somebody to blame. 
right? We, we drive on the highway and we see individuals who are smiling at us saying, call us 1-800-SUE-SOMEONE, right? And like, if there's going to be an accident at work, and yes, responsibility should be taken. And yes, there should be accountability. And yes, it does improve the conditions. There's no question. But we're, we're training ourselves in a certain sense. You know, if we don't like the one phone company, we're going to call them up, shout at that customer service representative, tell them how dissatisfied we are, put down the phone, feel very good about ourselves, and move to the next company. But really, in a certain sense, you know, yes, there is a service-based model in society, and money speaks. But what it's trained us to do is that everything in our life, we do the same thing. So the gutters are overflowing and the, the basement is flooding and we blame somebody. Who was it who, who put that down the toilet, right? Who was it? Right, we try to, but the point is that sometimes, yes, there's causation, but there's also an inner finger pointing which needs to take place. Well, you know, is there something I can own in this? Is there something I can improve in this? And that's just a question which society has trained us not to ask. And the Meiri is saying if we don't ask it, then we continue in the corrupt style of our life so we haven't improved anything. I remember I was talking about this because I once was teaching what was called, what's called Shara Gumul, the Ramban's book about reward and punishment. And he was talking about what's called, you know, what he called Tzadik Viralo, Theodicy, people suffering unnecessarily. And by the way, yes, that exists and it's, it's horrible and it's terrible. And, the, and there's, no, there's no question that it exists in the world. And I was speaking to Rabbi Meir Tversky in, in Yeshiva University and I was asking about the kind of parameters about this whole discussion, the Gemara in Brachos and Dov Hay talks about this. There's a lot of very, very significant ideas we should really to spend more time learning. But, Artursky pointed out a very interesting, it's, it's, it's a salient point, and that is that most suffering isn't Tzadik Varalai. Meaning to say, the Gemara says, because step number one is, not that we blame anybody else, we look inside, and nobody can do that in accounting for us except for ourselves. Because the only people living in our own lives, we're the only people living in our own shoes. That, uh, the Gomorrah does not say that when suffering comes upon your neighbor, you explain why it's how terrible in the late, music late at night and they drove across your rose, rose bush. That's not what the Gomorrah says. The Gomorrah says that every person knows their own life, and there's something they can incrementally improve. That's the first thing a person does when, when the mishaps occur. That doesn't mean to say that a person is responsible for everything, and there's many other machinations in, in place. But there is something we need to take account, account of, and that is something so counterintuitive to society. You know, sometimes you'll have a person, you know, who's, uh, you know, it's in the middle of the winter, he, he takes, a, he takes a, a, a shower, he goes out in his, you know, in his, uh, in his bathing suit, walks around the block on, the, on, on his phone for, four, for an hour, having a conversation, comes back in and gets, and, and gets, uh, and gets uh, pneumonia the next day. He says, God, how could you allow this to happen to me? How could you, how could you, God, do I need this now? The answer is, don't walk outside in the winter after having a shower, right? That's the answer. But sometimes we don't realize that because we forget that we walked outside. We forget that there's not punishment, it's consequences. There's consequences to our actions, but we sometimes do that in life. Somebody, somebody was once, once speaking to me, and not in this community, was talking about shalom bias issues. And I mentioned this recently. And they, and they said, I really have a lot of shalom bias issues. And then they said, I've got to tell you, I realize that I, I, I always put principles in front of people. I mentioned this recently. Meaning that I, I, when, when it comes down to staying the line and, and saying, I, I, I stand my ground because of, of a principle, I will always put that in front of people. And the answer is, well, you've answered the question. If principles always come in front of people, then you're going to carry on mowing down people in your, in your family because of your principles. But understand that that's not because why Hashem, you're doing that to me. That is, how can I help myself? to create a better society and surrounding that I can help myself. That's what the Meiri is saying over here. The, that, that's in terms of the finger pointing. It's a very, very, very hard, um, 
a very hard pill to swallow, but nonetheless, this is what, this is what he says. Now, he goes on to, as an example, let's take a look at 3D for a second, because we're not going to be able to get through everything, but I want just to just uh, focus on this for, for a moment. The top of page 6. One of the wire sages explains, and again, you notice over here, he does not reference who it is. And the footnote says, we don't, don't, don't even know who it is. Maybe it might be the Ramban, but the Ramban says something a little bit differently. In So in Pashas Chukas, the people complain about the manna. What happens? Hashem releases these nechash nechashim, these terrible serpents. People are dying. It's terrible. And how, what, is the, what is the remedy to this? Hashem says, put this banner up of the snake. And of course, the medical profession uses this as the symbol still to today of the sign on the banner. And this is the nechash nechashim. It says, What was the point of the snake? was to clearly show people that this is not a medical intervention. It was to show them that the only way they get back is when they reform their ways. We know from the sages of medicine, <coughs> those who are in the medical profession, Certainly this is the belief in, in the, when it came to rabies, and the Ramban does talk about this, <clears throat> is that if a person was bit by a snake and sees a snake, it exacerbates whether psychologically or physically exacerbates the condition. If a person was bit by a rabbit dog, and they saw a dog many times, they would see images of dogs, and it would, it would exacerbate the condition. What's the worst thing you can show somebody? It's a snake. And in fact, he goes on to say that in the a copper snake, a copper absorbs heat. And a person who is in such a situation, the more heat they're exposed to, the more, the, the more dismal it is for their prognosis. So what, what's Hashem saying? It's, it's so to speak, it's lahavdil. A person is, Rachman is diagnosed with diabetes, and, 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 the, the, and, and the, the, the intervention is, is eat, eat Captain Crunch, breakfast, breakfast lunch, and supper. That's, that's going to kill a person, right? One should read the back of cereal boxes to see how much... How much, uh, how, how much sugar they contain is terrible. What's, what's Hashem saying over here? The only success, the only remedy to this condition is what would be completely counterintuitive, as certainly in the science of the time, to this, this success of the person out, coming out of this. Which means what's Hashem really telling them? Is when this happened to you, the only way out is looking in, not looking out. That's what He's saying to them. That was the point of this. Similarly, He goes on to explain, we're not going to read it inside, but by Elisha, what happens? Yeah, we see this by Elisha and in the by Moshe Rabbeinu. There's water which is inaccessible. It's not drinking water. It's too bitter. What does he do? He throws a bitter branch into the water. But here you have the very opposite of what should be solving the problem. is solving the problem and making it sweet. In order to show us that a lot of the times the problems are only solved really by a spiritual accounting, not the physical accounting. Yes, we do the physical accounting. There's no question. But it has to be accompanied by something Something a person does internally as well. As we go on to the next section, we're going to try to, uh, try to wrap up uh, this moment over here. So, um, here we go. Let's take a look at, four, at 4D for a second. No, even let's just see. Yes, 4D on the next page, on, on, on page 7. It says, It says, 
Let's, let me just give a little background to this, this, this statement. He says, if you look through the Torah, you will notice that there are two ways that Hashem describes protecting us. One way is where it says that Kodesh Baruch all the diseases that happened in Egypt, I won't place upon you. Meaning, what's going to happen? I'm not allowing you, I'm making you impervious to that experience. And there's other times where Hashem says, I'll remove from you sickness. What's the difference between I won't place on you and I will remove from you? What's the difference? One is before and one is after, right? One time a person is being protected from the, from the episode, the other time the person is being, now so to speak, healed from the episode. Two different ways of looking at this. So what the Meiri says is that there's two modes of Hashem's way of, of, of conducting Himself with us. The following is, the number one is, is that if we listen to Hashem's voice, if we're trying to do the very best we are in life, then in such a situation, Hashem will make us, we'll call it the prevention model, which costs a lot, of, a lot less time, a lot less money, and we won't get there. He says, however, he says, but, and uh, then sometimes, we don't listen, and Hashem has to move on to model B. He says, therefore, in the next Krim. But then, if we don't listen, if we do improve our ways, He'll even remove us, He'll heal us. So what is in control? How do we control? We'll call it prevention and intervention, which are these two modes. Is our actions. The locus of control is internal rather than external to ourselves. Therefore, anybody who has something which happens in their lives, by the way, the Gemara says that can be as simple as a person putting their hand into their pocket, searching for their key, and getting the wrong item in their pocket. That's, that's how simple and subtle suffering can be expressed. He says, therefore, To do something in their life to fix. I remember once at a Chavrus in Israel, a very holy individual. His name is Rabbi Tzvi Davidson, who still today is a Mashkiach Ruchani in Karen Biavne now. And when he came to Yeshiva, actually, he, had, he couldn't read Rashi's script. That's how, that's how rudimentary his, his, his levels were. And today he's finished a smicha rabbanut, tremendous individual, a human being who's worked on himself to such a degree. When you, when you speak, when you interact with him, you realize this is a person who spent his life working on himself. Just the way he talks. And one of the things I remember is that he used to get, he used to get sometimes, you know, uh, he used to get a, a, a seasonal, like, skin, skin condition. And, uh, and one day I used to learn with him in the mornings. He was a number of years older than me, and he, uh, and, and he would, sometimes at the beginning of our learning session, would ask just for a little bit of time, where he could just, you know, sit down and he'd write, so he had a little notebook, and he'd do a personal accounting. And I remember I was at a very difficult, uh, you know, for me, I was many years, and still am many years behind him in terms of personal growth. And I asked him what he was doing, and he says he was doing it, an accounting of why it is that this condition came right now, and what he's going to do to, to improve his life. And I laughed, and I said, how do you know you got the right thing? Like meaning to say, like, you know, you're poking around in the dark, you know, you're saying, I'm going to improve my life, I'm going <coughs> to arrive a little early, I'm going to be a little better with the kids. You're right, like, you know, who are you to know? So he smiled at me and he said, and what if I'm wrong? 
What if I'm wrong? I've improved my life. I've tried. I've tried to do something. And I wasn't there at the place. I wasn't yet at the spot where I could understand that fully yet. But that's, that, that's, that's, that's what the Meiri is saying. Is some, sometimes that's the intervention. Sometimes that's the prevention. And therefore, says the Meiri, and we're going to close with this. Therefore, what's the point of this book? He says, I'm going to give you three sections of the Sefer. There's actually many more sections. He's going to, I left out the end of this introduction where he has sections and subjects and subsections. And he explains every detail because he's going to tell us what he's about to do. But he has the general sections on page 8. Source 5a, he says, Mitzad I'm going to explain to you the halachas of Tanis, of fasting. And this is such a lost art today. It really is a lost art. You know, it becomes the communal complaint. I teach, I teach in high school, I teach high school girls. And I, I have to tell you, I, I, I was shocked by the attitude they had. And the attitude didn't, was not made by them, it was made in the houses that they grew up in about the fact that fasting is negotiable. Fasting is dependent on your mood. Fasting, right? Yes, there are shyness and one should not do anything which is unhealthy. But fasting is halacha. It's very important. For this is the last bastion of what we have left of Megillah's Tanis. There's many, many more we're not doing today. We're not even doing Beze Bez today. We're, there's so many things we're not doing. Is as a Tanis, as a point, where a person is saying, yes, I'm going to put myself in an uncomfortable situation <coughs> because I know there's something wrong and I'm not going to just watch movies through it, I'm going to maybe take a few minutes of that day and say, maybe there's something I could do in it. Maybe there's something, what am I going to come out at the end of this, this, this time where I feel exhausted, I feel drained, and maybe I feel less distracted by the fact that I didn't need to spend so many hours a day talking and thinking and eating. But now maybe, I, is, is there something I can do about this? So he says, that's, that's item number one. But item number two is, he says, He says, when a person is in that situation where a loved one is no longer there, he says, We're never inoculated. We should realize, and it's so interesting, the way the Ram describes it is the way that the Ramam says, he said, when there's an Avelus in the family, Rachman Litzon, Hashem should save us. He says, one thinks about the people closest in the inner nuclear circle feel like there's a sword walking on their necks as they walk around. And as, the, as, the, as it gets further, there's a sword hanging out around the corner everywhere a person walks. And that's not just the mortality of the situation. What he means to say is that everybody is affected, everybody is impacted. And it's not just the cathartic expression of grief. But there has to be an inner looking as well, because when a person is confronted with mortality, they have to say to themselves, what am I going to do that at, at my funeral, they will talk about the values which I hope I represent? Am I doing enough to get there in the right way? Are my grandchildren going to talk, to talk about me in the same loving way that as I went to this funeral? Am I doing something to get there? Because that is, it's not just, it's not just about giving cover to the mace. The Gorgon says it's, it's as well. There's a certain element that relates to us, the living people, and what we're going to do about that. That's a different dimension. And finally, he says the following, and that is, is the, last, the last section of here on, the very, on page 9, which we're going to do. A person should really spend a lot of time listening to, getting involved with, when there's a hesped and there's a eulogy for a great person. 
When a person dies, everybody's their relative. I mean, everybody's like, when a great person dies, their inner nuclear circle is expanded outwards. There's something we can learn from that person. An example, I remember I was one, uh, somebody, I was just chatting with someone in this community, and she said she was at a funeral, and the funeral was of, of a Holocaust survivor. And it was an extremely moving funeral. And there was somebody sitting on her bench in the chapel, they were on Facebook the whole time. The whole time. And she went over to this person at the end and she said, you really missed out. There was something you missed out. How could you be there? How could you be there and not be there? How could you experience that and not experience that? You know, just, just recently, you know, whoever, whoever had the opportunity of being, in the, and there's numerous, but at the funeral of Eugene Black just recently, you know, you, 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 really, you really suddenly ask yourselves, you know, Am I, am I, am I doing what's necessary? One story, and as an example of this is, you know, there was a story which, 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 which was told, Barbara spoke about um, her dad, and she said, she said that there was an, in, uh, an instance where, you know, of course he was the CEO of a very large company, and there was a, a lower tier employee who asked for a meeting with him. It was the first time, it was a new employee, and this is the first meeting, they were nervous, and he was just discussing the job and the backwards and forwards. The secretary walks into the room, and she says, you know, Mr. Gluck, I have Mr. Binyamin Netanyahu on, one, on line one. So he turns to the secretary and he says to her, he says, can you please tell Mr. Netanyahu, I'm in the, port in the middle of a very important meeting. I'll get back to him shortly. That was, that was, that was, that was the story. And there were many such stories. But you, when, you, when you hear something like that, are we, are we doing that? Are we willing to do that? Or do people matter enough to us to do that? As an example. So says the Me'iri, is that it's important when there are people when there are people who impact so many to take note of those hespedim. When it comes to people in our own lives, to notice and to be able to turn the dial backwards inwards because that's the way we can learn. So of course these are very heavy issues, but at the same time, it's important. It's important. We're, we're, this is the the hakdom to Yisrael Chuvah. Maybe we can appreciate why the Miri was a little scared to write this, and perhaps why it's a little uncomfortable for me to even read it. But at the same time, we're in the season. We're at this point in time. Where hopefully every incremental change will make us people who we weren't last year. When we come back to our diaries, when we come back to our notes, God willing, we should always look back and say, wow, look how far I've come. We should always be inoculated from the Yisurim which comes.